Well, thanks for being here. Those of you who are here, we're going to continue with the book of Second Peter. Uh, we just did last week. We really did an introduction. I just want to do really a quick overview of what we talked about, mainly not the setting, not the uh, the time, because it's very uh, pretty simple. He was in prison in Rome. He was about to die. This is the last book that he wrote. He told us that he was about to take, put off the tent. And uh, he was going to die the way his his Savior, Jesus Christ, had told him in, in John chapter 21 and martyred him. He was martyred. According to Jewish tradition, he was martyred upside down and he was crucified. Him and along with his wife, whom he had to witness that gory, uh, gory event. But uh, so Peter's about to die. And uh, Peter is going to, in his last breath, he's going to as a Holy Spirit bears him along. He's going to build up the church, encourage the church, even at his demise, thinking of others instead of himself. So we looked at the major themes are quite different from uh, from First Peter. Remember, First Peter was was uh, primarily again about uh, tribulation and trouble and trials that we go through and how to be obedient through the trials and to learn through the trials. This one is a little different. Uh, the major themes of this book, as we looked at them last week, we're going to, chapter two is going to be all about false teachers. We're going to look at the nature of the teachers. We're going to look at the depravity of the teacher, the motivations of these false teachers. And we're going to try to blend it in with today's current false teaching that is out there. Uh, we looked at the false teaching, uh, really a small sample of it, and it's predominantly, uh, it was this, uh, it was false religion. It was a blend of mysticism. It was a blend of Christianity. It was a blend of, of a bunch of different Eastern religions called Gnosticism, which really means uh, divine knowledge. And, and, and what these teachers were teaching is that, uh, uh, that knowledge is, a key, is, is the key, and, and knowledge spurs the divine within each of us. And it's just a horrific heresy. Uh, and we will talk about that more as we get into it next uh, in the next couple of weeks. And we'll look at, uh, matter of fact, I was talking to Keith the last Sunday, and what he's teaching now on critical race theory is a form of Gnosticism. It's a form of uh, just a supreme uh, arrogance and pride and being puffed up, and we're the only way, and this is the way, and if you don't agree with our way. And so we'll talk about all that as we, as we get into this study. But uh, that's what... Uh, one of the major themes. The second theme was knowledge, and we're going to differentiate between the knowledge we talked about this last week, and then we'll talk about a new type of knowledge today. Uh, and then we're going to look at uh, how, how Peter reminds us in uh, the last part of chapter one. We're going to look at today, we're going to look at the development of Christian character, and uh, we're going to look at how that happens within each one of us. We're going to look at, as we anticipate in chapter 3, God's judgment on this earth and his recreating of this earth and this burning of the elements of this earth up. And then lastly, and today, we'll be looking at some precious promises that God has to us as people. So that sort of catches us up where we are. Uh, we did the salutation last week. Uh, we just talked about being a doulos, being a slave for Christ and what that is and what it isn't. And then we talked about the humility of Peter as he was himself a slave. We are slaves. We talked about that in great detail. And then we talked about uh, that he was also an apostle. He had a balanced viewpoint of himself. He was humble. He was a slave, but he also understood he had a specific task, a God-given task, and he did that well as he was an apostle. 
an eyewitness of the resurrection of Christ, gifted with church building and some other uh, apostolic gifts. So let's start today. Let's look at the chapter 1. We'll look at uh, verse 2. We'll read 2 through 8. And what we're going to be talking about today is the development of Christian character. A development of Christian character. We're not going to get far into it today because this is so rich. Uh, but next week we're going to talk about uh, some of the character we should have as Christians. And it's going to really going to dovetail what Terry's going to be preaching about next week about behaving like a Christian and uh, sort of the similar teaching. So that'll help us. Uh, so let's look at chapter uh, one, verse uh, two through eight. Let me read it and then we'll, uh, we'll commence. Uh, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power is given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which we have been given exceeding great and precious promises, that through these promises we may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lusts. But also for this very reason, given all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. If these things are yours and abound, you will not be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is is useless or short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his own sins. And then we end with a imperative, one of the four of the foundational imperatives of this book. Therefore, brethren, be more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, that means you're growing as a Christian, uh, you will never stumble, and an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we see that. So I want to talk about the development of Christian character. Uh, those of you who are on Zoom probably can't see this, but uh, on the board I have, if you are writing these things down, if you're not, it, uh, it may be best just to listen, but it's uh, uh, italics number one, the development of Christian character and we're going to look at that in verses 3 and 4. The first thing we have to see is that there is an enabler. There is an initiator. There is one who must commence this process in each one of us. Without this initiator and this enabler, none of us are able to attain this Christian walk and to grow in grace, nor would any of us wanted to. We are dead in trespasses and sins, and uh, we would have no desire for him, but the initiator, the enabler is going to come along. He's going to regenerate our hearts. He's going he's to take us from our dead spiritual state. He's going to give us spiritual life. And so he's the one who is going to be the initiator and the enabler of us for our Christian walk. So it says grace and peace. Uh, our character, I've had this written down, uh, our Christian character grows for one reason, just like our salvation. It grows by grace. The word grace, 
is is uh, is charis, and that word means gift. Grace is a is what? What's the definition of grace? We have an acrostic, God's riches at Christ's expense. Pretty decent definition of grace. What is the the definition of charis uh, that that you've learned? Unmerited favor. favor. It's an undeserved uh, gift. It is free favor of God that is bestowed on us, and it's bestowed in and through Jesus Christ. There's one God, and there's one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. So in God's providence, he has decided in his good graces, he's given us a special grace, and that special grace is to know him. And to have a desire for him and he in his grace regenerates us. His Holy Spirit produces faith in us. We apprehend him and as that is his grace. So grace is the enabler. Uh, it is a work of God himself and it is the one, he is the one who gives it to us. It's unmerited. Uh, I love what one commentator said. It's the act of a large handed generosity. So God, uh, before we knew him, he knew us. He's always known his people and he has brought us to himself and that we can only humble ourselves and say, thank you. Uh, you're the only one that has caused us to differ. And uh, we could be haters, we could be whatever, and we used to be. But uh, his grace has changed us, so we're thankful. So the development of Christian character must start with initiator and enabler, and that, of course, is God the Father and the Son, uh, and it is done by grace. Peace is the effect of grace. Grace always comes first. If you look at all of the epistles, the Pauline and the, and the Petrin epistles, and the other, the James and Jude and the other epistles, you always notice it's always grace first. And so, but grace produces something, and it says grace and peace is the effect of grace. And it is, uh, and it's the word arena in the Greek. It's very, very easy word, but it means uh, well-being that flows because we have been reconciled to him. We've been forgiven. So we wrote us, if you'll look at, uh, you're very familiar with this text, and there are literally uh, uh, multiple texts in Scripture that, that give us this, but the, the best, the most simple one to understand is, is uh, Romans 5. Uh, we understand that peace, irene, is a effect that grace causes within us, and this is the fact that we are in the right state before God because of the work of Christ. And we see that in Romans chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. We have been declared righteous by faith. God, the righteous judge, puts his gavel down and he says, Righteous because of the imputed righteousness of Christ has been transferred to our account and our sinful account has been transferred to Christ's account. And the great substitutionary transaction occurs. It's, a, it's an accounting term, as you guys know. We've been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And because of this peace, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So, so Peter is saying the initiator of our Christian character is a, is peace, which is a product of grace, which is when we stand before God, we are right before Him. He's no longer angry with us. 
His, his wrath against us has been appeased. It has been propitiated. We have been reconciled to God. We are now able to stand before him because of the work of his son. And he adopts us into his family. Uh, there is forgiveness. The sin that we've committed against him uh, is remembered against us no more. It is cast into the sea of his forgetfulness. It is removed as far as the east from the west. And he is not angry with us anymore. That is peace. It's not a cessation of war, but it is peace. When we stand before God, we say and we claim and we understand that we are right before him, as right as we could possibly be. We stand before him perfectly righteous, if you can fathom that, because of Christ. So that is the, this is the initial work of God within us, and this is what is going to be preparatory for us then being able to be godly in our lives but it has to start through grace uh, and we see this and then we look at this grace and peace be multiplied to you this is uh, this is so comforting to me I know many of you uh, that aren't even here today that are here and Melanie is added to the list I know many of you are going through very difficult circumstances in your life and uh, so am I if you know my situation with my mother who's got dementia and it's a horrible and it's difficult and we got family members that are lost and we struggle with many things. <laughs> this is so comforting me. This, this phrase be multiplied to you implies several things. It implies that we have received God's grace. So we've been enabled. We have been saved. So when he's saying be multiplied to you, first of all, it assumes that we have it. So all of us have had this grace and peace within us that is multiplied to us. But that also implies that it has this great capacity to grow within us. Okay. And so it means in different situations, when we need it, this grace and peace are going to be is going to be multiplied to us. And so when I'm in my stressful life and Melanie's in hers and, and Jim and Chris are in theirs and Ron and Pam and, and everybody in this room are in their difficult situations, this grace can be multiplied to meet our need. It's not just a one-time grace that there you go, but it's a grace that grows and multiplies according to our specific need. So I may not have enough grace for tomorrow, but tomorrow will I have enough grace for tomorrow, okay? And so anytime I need the grace, it is there for me, and it helps me through whatever I'm going through. In this specific situation, to these readers and to Peter, this grace is going to be sufficient so he can say, I know I'm about to die, and I'm looking forward to that death, and I'm going to be in my new tent. To these readers, it's we're being inundated by these false teachers. We're being inundated by this heresy and false accusations and them saying, oh, Jesus is not going to come back. That's just a lie. And so they're being bombarded with all this stuff. And Peter is saying that grace is going to be multiplied to you, and that grace will help you to stand and even grow despite what you're going through. So comfort, you guys. Hopefully it's 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 uh, – the multiplied to you, uh, it increases in measure as we need all we need for our circumstances. And we see that in multiple uh, scripture. Uh, the principle is uh, Ephesians, uh, Philippians 4.19. My God shall supply all you need according to his riches in Christ Jesus. 
So that's a principal text that Paul in his confidence, this, in this, in this context, he's learning to be content in whatever state he's in. He's, he's, he's been poor, he's been impoverished, and he's been rich, and he's learned to whatever state he's in to be content. And he's learned that because of experience and he's growing, but he understands this principle that God is supplying all of his needs. So that's the great principle to all these things. And then there's other verses. Uh, for example, look at 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Whatever uh, temptation or trial you're going to, uh, it tells us this very plainly in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation or no trial, no trouble, no... Uh, Whatever word, uh, synonym of temptation you would have put in, it's, it is a literal temptation, but it's also a trial, has overtaken you such as is common to men. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will with the temptation make the way of escape that you'll be able to bear it. So this grace is going to come in, and this grace is going to enable you to Thrive in the temptation, thrive in the trial, thrive in the trouble, so that afterward you're going to say, God did that. And look what God taught me that, in that, and look how he is making me like his son. But that's what it means, that's what it means, uh, be multiplied to you. We know that, we know the text from, uh, from Paul's thorn in his flesh. He asked God to remove it. God said, no. He said, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And then Paul learned, well, I will glory in my weaknesses because I'm, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And that's 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 through the next two or three verses. So we see that this measure of grace is given to it as we need it. So when we in our weak frailties think to ourselves, how am I going to get through this? How am I going to... I don't have the wisdom, I don't have the strength, I don't have the patience, I don't have the fortitude intestinally to deal with everything I'm going through. The answer is my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And this is given to you for a purpose. This this is a short time in perspective. We have to understand that. I was visiting my mother today, and we, we had an hour, and the 30 minutes was the longest 30 minutes I've ever experienced in my life. And it's just... It just seems like it's difficult, okay? But God's strength is made perfect in that weakness, right? And so all of you have these same stories. But uh, but that's what that means. This is how Scripture comes alive. This isn't just a, uh, just a book to read. This is the Holy Spirit written book that enables us in every single facet of our life. So it should encourage you. So you read it because it will encourage you. So we see that's what it means that grace is multiplied uh, to each one of us. So everybody understand that? Uh, James 4, 6 tells us uh, uh, same similar verbiage that we've read in First in Peter. Uh, whoever's got uh, James 4, 6, uh, we see that. A similar phrasing. Uh, uh, do you not know that, verse 5, do you not know that the Scripture says in that the, do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealousy, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So as we humble ourselves in the mighty hand of God, that he will uh, and cast our cares upon him, he will exalt us in due season. That verse we learned last, last uh, book. So that is applicable. So it is multiplied to us. Everybody know where we are so far? Any comments or questions? 
about sufficiency of grace? Yes. Quote it. Tell us. It says, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts. So the idea of rule is like umpire to make a final choice. So we are letting God, during those times, let that peace rule in us. And that's how we can, as Christians, go into different terrible circumstances knowing we have the peace of God ruling in our hearts. And they, you guys that didn't hear that, Jeff mentioned uh, Colossians 3, 5, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. This is a great comment about uh, uh, what it means for grace to be multiplied. That was we trust him, he's ruling in our hearts. And uh, so uh, so that's excellent. Good point. Thank you. Uh, the next thing I want to look at is we look at uh, our initially enablement by, the God, by God through grace and the peace and the multiplication of grace. Uh, is this phrase in the knowledge? Remember, we talked last week. Uh, we looked at the knowledge, and we when we use the Greek word gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, and that's a general term for knowledge. Uh, it is the most common term for knowledge. Uh, we see that in uh, in uh, in verse uh, chapter uh, one, verse five. It says, "This is the gnosis knowledge," uh, verse. Uh, verse 5, but for this reason, given all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge. That's gnosis, a general knowledge. Uh, it's, a, it's a knowledge that we see in chapter 3, verse 18. Uh, just general word knowledge, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just an accumulation of facts, uh, that type of knowledge. This knowledge that we're looking at here is a different word. Uh, grace and peace be multiplied in the knowledge. This word knowledge has a prefix on it, and it's epigenosis. And uh, the difference in, in a gnosis knowledge, which is a general knowledge, and an epigenosis knowledge is the prefix. And the prefix uh, makes it different. The prefix uh, makes it uh, intimate and personal. The, the prefix epi uh, is a knowledge that is exact and it's thorough. And it's the, the epi prefix to gnosis is, is a word that the prefix distinguishes between worldly knowledge and godly knowledge. All men have a capacity for gnosis. Epigenosis is a work of God that is distinguished from human knowledge. It is, if you'll let me say, it's head knowledge versus heart knowledge. Epigenosis is a work of God where he works in your heart to give you the ability to have an intimate and personal knowledge. We can actually know God instead of knowing about him. Uh, the world knows there's a God. The world predominantly acknowledges there's a God. Now, it's not the God of the Bible, but they understand that there's a creator. Uh, most would acknowledge that and that there's, whether they call him a force or whatever they call God, but there is a general knowledge. Of, uh, Psalm 19 says that the, the, the heavens and the earth declare, the, and everybody can see from even creation and have a gnoso knowledge of God, a, a head knowledge of God, but this epigenoso <laughs> is a God-given, spirit-driven knowledge that allows us to have an intimate, personal knowledge of God. So we don't know about him. We know who he is. 
because we read his word, the Holy Spirit energizes that word, and we can have a personal understanding of who God is because we see who his character is, he's faithful to his word, and we see his effect in our lives. So that's the great difference between a gnoso knowledge and an epigenoso, and we'll be looking at that. But it, uh, and it, uh, and so that is, uh, that is how God allows us to develop Christian character because we have not only a head knowledge, but we have a knowledge transferred into a, that it is a life transforming knowledge. It changes our wills and our desires and our want tos and our abilities. Okay. So that's how God works in us through this epigenosis knowledge of Him. And it's not just a cerebral thing. I know a lot of people that have a lot of this, but it don't have a lot of this. And it's because God hasn't, uh, hasn't wrought that in them. And a head knowledge will not save you. And it does not save you, but it's got to be the Holy Spirit who takes that head knowledge and creates newness uh, through it. And uh, so that's what the difference is. So we see Peter saying, uh, uh, this grace and knowledge are multiplied in the knowledge uh, as he develops us. Uh, we grow into a greater appreciation of him and an understanding of him, and we see him working in us, and we readily comply, and we volunteer in the day of his power, one of the Psalms tells us. So <clears throat> So we see the, that the knowledge is vital. Uh, in the uh, understanding of who God is. And so I just want to encourage you. Uh, Terry mentioned something a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I think all of us would be horrified if we were to put our time we spend in the Word compared to whatever else we do. So I just want to encourage you to meditate on the Word. That means talk out loud to yourself and reason with yourself. Look at the Word and apply that Word to you. Meditate on the word, memorize the word, and you will learn to love it. And the word will become a, an epigenosis in your mind. And it will be a life-changing word, and it won't just be words on a page, okay? It won't become, I call it, I know a lot of theoretical Christians, they talk about Christianity, and it's like it's a theory. It's something that they see out there, but it's not a personal, intimate thing with them. And you can tell that it's that way, the way they live their lives. But you can tell uh, by the way uh, uh, their intimacy with God. And it's a developed thing. And, uh, and so that's what comes from grace being multiplied to you. And uh, you see it's in effect in many different ways. We'll get into that some other day. But uh, knowledge of God and I remember we talked about last week, there are some who think that he's just your Savior, and you accept him as your Savior. And there was a big, uh, in this, I think what we've come up with, it's in the 70s, maybe the 80s. But, uh, but this says here, he's not only our God, but he's our Lord. So Jesus is God, and he is our Lord. And then later we're going to get into he's our Savior. So, so God is, is God. Jesus is God. Jesus is our Lord. He's our master. He has ruler over us. And he's also our Savior, uh, which is, tells us in verse 1, uh, we are saved by the, by the righteousness of God and Jesus Christ our Savior. So we see that the deity of Christ is emphasized in this book and that he's God and that he's Lord and that he's also our Savior. And we see that in, in many verses in Scripture. 
uh, I won't read them, but I, I have them written down for you. Uh, uh, no, I don't. Titus is 2.13. <laughs> no, I don't. Titus 2.13, if you want to look at some verses that tell us that Jesus Christ is our Lord and our God and our Savior. Matter of fact, let me just go ahead and read that to you. I don't want to shortchange you. Titus uh, 3.5. Uh, what is Titus? Somebody has Titus 3.5 for me. Uh, now do uh, Titus 2.13. Excuse me. Titus 2.13. That's another verse for another uh, another section. Who's got Titus 2.13? Okay. Titus 2.13 is looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Our blessed hope and looking for the appearance of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Titus 2.13. Who's got 2 Thessalonians 1.12? Somebody read 2 Thessalonians 1.12. Okay. Okay. So we have him identified as our Savior and our Lord and our God. He is all things to us. Uh, we see this again mentioned in uh, in the Philippians uh, chapter three, uh, Philippians three eight and nine. Uh, we see uh, this verbiage, similar verbiage. Uh, Philippians 3, 8, and 9 tells us that. Hmm, uh, yet also I count all things for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, my Lord. I think Paul agreed that Jesus is our Lord. Uh, Philippians 3, 8, and 9. Uh, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count what I've suffered as rubbish that I may in Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness, which is from God by faith. We see the analogy of scripture that Jesus is not only our Lord, he's our God and he is our savior. So we see Peter uh, agreeing with all the other apostles agreeing with the other writers of Scripture. Of course he would because it's written by the same person, the Holy Spirit. And so we see uh, see that. Uh, now let's look at the empowerment. We've looked at the uh, initiator, the enabler. Of course, uh, now let's look at the empowerment. And, we'll, and this verse 3 is a, uh, a most wonderful verse in Scripture. 3 and 4. Uh, the empowerment. Look at verse 3. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by faith and virtue. So we see this, uh, uh, we see this empowerment. Uh, let's look at the, the nature of the empowerment in 3a. As his divine power. That word power, the root word of power, guess what it is? It's one of my favorite Greek words. Dynamite. It's dunamis. So the nature of this empowerment uh, that the enabler gives us is his divine power, and it's the dunamis, the root word. It's a supernatural power that is inherent in the giver. By his very nature. So this verse says that because Christ is God, he's deity, he has this supernatural power that's inherent in him because he, who he is, 
And he gives this dunamis, this dynamite, and that is the enabler of our growth and grace. So I love this. His divine power, the power that belongs to the deity. Uh, if you want to, you know, Peter is writing to a bunch of knowledge-seeking people who are consumed with knowing stuff. Uh, and are just curiosity or are filled with wonder and they want to learn, which is good, but they're learning wrongly and they've got false teachers. It's the same thing that Paul went through when he was in Greece at the Acropolis. Uh, remember, let's look at the, uh, Acts 17. These are learned men. They're not ignorant. They are, uh, they have four degrees after their name. This is a, the root of knowledge is comes, you know, a strong root of that is in Greece. Uh, they are filled with wonder and knowledge and want to learn new stuff. And Paul is up, uh, at the, uh, uh, if you pronounce it, Aeropagus. I think it's Oropagus. It's in Greece. It's still you can still see the ruins there today. But he's addressing these people who are very religious. Religion is man trying to approach God his way. So there's a lot of religious people in this world. Uh, you can be religious and be a Muslim or a Mormon or a Scientologist or a, a Shintoist or whatever you want to be. Uh, those people are religious. They they want to approach God, but they they do it wrongly their way. And that's the difference between a, a spiritual pursuit. Christianity is is God approaching men, okay, instead of the other way around. But uh, so these men are, uh, you know, want to be knowledgeable and they want to learn, which is all good. But uh, this is what uh, Paul says to them. Uh, just look at verse 22, Acts 17. This is sort of going to dovetail with his divine power. The only other time this is mentioned in Scripture is in verse 29, but I want to give you the background. Paul is standing on this Areopagus, and he says, Men of Athens, I perceive in all things you are very religious, for I'm passing through, and I consider the objects of your worship. This is religion, man trying to approach God his way. I found an altar, it says, to the unknown God, and therefore the one whom you worship without knowing. You have a gnoso knowledge, but you don't have an epigonoso knowledge. I proclaim him to you, God, who made the world and everything is in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he's made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, and he has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek him in the hope that they may grope for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us for in him we live and move and have our being as also some of your poets have said for we are his divine offspring said some of the poets therefore since we are the offspring of God we ought not to think that the divine nature that's the word that Peter uses the divine power is like gold or silver or stone something shaped by art and man's devising God has overlooked this in your ignorance, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. And so there has been appointed a day on which he shall judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he's ordained, Jesus Christ, obviously. And he's given assurance of this by the fact that he raised Jesus from the dead. So we see this. Uh, Peter's playing on words. He's saying, 
he's saying the divine power has been given to us. It's the dynamite that enables us to grow in grace. And then it says, uh, not only does it say it's divine power, it has given us. That's very important. We understand that's by grace. It's unmerited. Uh, and it's in the perfect tense. That means that it is a permanent gift to God's people. He has given it to us, and he will never take it back. We cannot lose it. It's a permanent gift from him. If you think you can lose your salvation, you think you've done something to earn it, as I always say. But this is a permanent gift that he has given to us, right? So we understand that. Look at this. All things that pertain to life and godliness. All means all. It's comprehensive. Nothing needs to be added to it. Nothing is lacking in it. It is complete. So when we whine and we complain, which I do, which all of you I know do because you're all like me. When we complain in our minds and think to ourselves, I can't do this. What am I going to do? And we get anxious and we're worried and we fall apart internally. Right? We all do. We need to understand that he has given us all the grace we need and will continue to give us all the grace we need, okay, to get through whatever he brings into our life, okay? We don't need to pray for more of this, more of that, more of that. It's there. We just need to appropriate it through faith and obedience, okay? It's there. We're plugged in. We just got to appropriate. And why don't? How, what are some things we do that, that fail to appropriate what He's given us? What are some our behaviors that that keep us from all things He's given us? Not trusting. Not trusting. Doubt. Faithlessness. Faithlessness comes because we don't read the Word. We don't know truth sometimes. What else? Anything else? Pride. Pride. Oh. Now, we all understand if you admit something in here, it's somebody else. <laughs> None of us implicate ourselves in here, right? Ha ha. Pride. I can do this myself. I don't need God. It's there. It's available. It's not because he hasn't provided it. It's because we don't appropriate it. And that's, that's our sin. That's our nature. We want to do it on ourselves, men specifically, women too. Hmm? As Melanie told me last week, so we we uh, it's it's all of us within all of our natures that we think we can handle it, we can do it ourselves. We want to fix it. We want to, as 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 the psalmist says, uh, the, our reactions are anger, and I want to fly away. Ever been there, done that? In whatever situation. I wish I wasn't in this. I want to fly away or you get angry about it. That's what I do. How about you guys? Nobody's not shaking their head. That's good. You're admitting it. That's good. So so his defined power has given us all things. So if you don't get anything out of this, he's given me all I need to start the Christian walk, to continue in the Christian walk, and to complete the Christian walk. He who began a good work in us will finish it, right? So if he's begun it, the enabler that has initiated it in you, he's going to finish it, okay? 
trust that, trust the process, as somebody used to say. We trust the process, and it's him. Uh, this also implies that we need to grow and develop because we don't always appropriate it. So when he says he provides all things that pertain to life and godliness, implies that we need to grow in it because of the aforementioned reasons why we don't. It says he's given us that pertain to life. That word life is zoa. Uh, uh, the word life is zoa, and it is spiritual and is the opposite of death. Scripture says we were dead in trespasses and sin, but Christ. So the life comes, zoa comes. It's the opposite of death, and it is the, the zoa life is a result of being begotten by God. If you want to turn back to First Peter, uh, remember when he's talking about our inheritance, he starts it in First Peter 1, 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. So the, the Zoa life is because he's begotten us. We have a spiritual life, okay? And look what it says, life and godliness. Godliness, the word is Eusebian, E-U-S-E-B-E-I-A-N. If you're writing that down, it's a Greek word. And so that word Eusebian, E-U-S-E-B-I-A-N, means to be reverent, to be devout, but it means to be prepared to worship. So, because the divine power is initiated in within us a spiritual life, that spiritual life then is enables us to be able to worship him. We declare his worth, we understand his worth, we understand he's our sovereign, our allegiance is to him, but that's because the Zoa life has been created in us. So, uh, the, the, an, another thing, uh, if you don't write any of this down, uh, it's critical. The order is critical. Life must be given before godliness occurs. It is not by godliness that we obtain life. Life leads to godliness. So that's order. He didn't say he's given us all things that pertain to godliness and life. It's to life and godliness. Godliness always follows spiritual life. We cannot have godly life without the Zoa life created in us. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's works do not save. Grace through faith saves, and grace through faith lead to works. Okay, so the Zoa life has to start us, and then the Zoa life leads to godliness. Okay, and so we understand that. And in in that uh, this godliness, what it is, if you want a definition, it's the inner attitude of reverence that gives us the ability to God to please God in our activities. Inner attitude started by the Zoa life that we are able to please God by our activities, and we please God through faith only. Right? If it's not by faith, it doesn't please God, and so it has to be from Him. And so we see that we are enabled to live a life of godliness because we have been given life by him to begin with. Okay, moving right along. Through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. Talked about that. 
the word glory, we talked about that through the epikinosis, through as we get to know him, we get to know him through his glory and virtue. The word glory is doxe, D-O-X-E. It is a word that shows who Christ is on the inside and how he manifests himself through his incarnation. So Jesus is God, but he's clothed in human flesh, and that human flesh veils who he is on the inside. So at the transfiguration, he unveils who he is in the inside. He unveils himself, and they see this bright light of his glory. So what this phrase means, that we come to the knowledge, and when we understand who he is intrinsically, his glory, his self-manifestation of who he is as a divine, and his incarnation is veiled in human flesh, his glory, but he displays his glory to his disciples over time, and by that display of glory, they learn to reverence him. They learn to love him. They learn to worship him, and he does that with us. And his virtue is his moral, perfect life. So Jesus, as a man, he comes to earth. He displays who he is by his actions. Although his deity is somewhat veiled by his flesh, he displays who he is intrinsically by how he lives his life. And that is what motivates us and motivates his disciples to grow and trust him and grow in faith with him. So that's what it simply means. A lot of verbiage, but that's simply what it means. He demonstrates. He's the express image of the Godhead bodily. And so he comes to life. He is who God the Spirit is in human flesh. Okay? He's not a prophet, just a prophet. He's not just a great teacher. He is a great prophet. He is a great teacher, but he is Christ. He is God. And so we're drawn to him because who he is. And that is the motivation and the enabler for us to live godly. And so I want to end with this. Well, he's called us by glory and virtue. We've been given great and precious promises. Do anybody have a clue how many promises are in the word of God? I have, you can't look up the word promises in scripture. There's not that many words of promises, but the implication and the promises of scripture, there are between three and four thousand promises in the scripture. How many of those promises have you memorized? I'm not fussing. I'm not being ugly. I'm just asking you a simple question. This is what it means to have an epikinosis of God. And we do that because we look at who he is. He displays himself. He tells us who he is. And one of the reasons why he expresses who he is is through his promises. And his promises never fail. His promises are Yea and true and amen. It's impossible for him to lie. So the three the four thousand promises in the sixty-six books of scripture are there for our benefit and they give him glory. So it behooves us as midget minded people that we are. And just admit that about yourself, because we are. <laughs> we have what one percent of our brain is, is what we use. Is that close, Melanie, or Austin? What do you, if you know the percentages? It's, it's minute. But as you expand your mind, as he, as he shapes you, 
your mind grows in the ability to understand him, and you do that through his promises. There's 3,000. How many do you know? What are your fall to scriptures? I mean, we all have scriptures we memorize. When we're going through this, we're going through that. We quote that to ourselves, and that's good, and we, we should do that. Three to 4,000 promises. It says uh, we, are, we, are, we grow in knowledge by his glory and virtue through the great and precious promises. So I would encourage you to understand what the promises are, to read the promises, to meditate, and to memorize the promises. I've got so many promises that I've memorized over the years, and that's what gives me an epikinosis of who God is, because I see them, and I see that he does exactly what he says he's going to do. So that helps me to know him. If you want to get to know your spouse, what do you, you, you know them, right? You experience them. Just, and I could do, I could spend just, just some chew on verses. I if you don't read this book, I would encourage you to read Isaiah chapter 40 through 66 and read it until you memorize it. There are more promises in 40 through 66 than in, than in any specific parts of scripture that I'm aware of, except maybe the Psalms. If we only had Psalm 40 through 66, I mean, Isaiah 40 through 66 and the Psalms, that would be enough promises for us. But just to give you a, a, a small, to reach your appetite and to taste and see that the God is good, that God is good. Look at Isaiah 40, 28 through 31. I'm just going to read this one for a second. If I don't have time, I don't have time. 40, 28 through, have you not known, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, isn't, doesn't faint, nor is he weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might. He increases their strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord, this is a promise, shall renew their strength. They shall exchange their strength for God's strength. That's what renew means. Is that a good thing? They shall renew their strength for God's strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Does that help you? That's one of the myriad of precious promises. Look at 43, 1 through 2, while we're just in this incredible section. 43, 1 through 2, but now says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and that's anyone who's in Christ through the faith of Abraham, that's us and Israel, saved Israel. He who formed you, O Israel, fear not. I have bought you with my precious blood. That's what it means to be redeemed. I have called you by your name. You are mine. How about that? You, When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. And you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, and your Savior. Does that help you? Precious promises. Chapter 46. As we, as we, as we loiter in Isaiah, look at 46, 3 and 4. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel. That's us who have been upheld by me from birth, who have been carried from the womb 
even to your old age, I am here, he, and even to your gray hairs, as we have gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made you, I will bear you, I will carry you and deliver you. To whom are you going to liken me and make me equal and compare with me that we should be alike? To help you, great verses that help us as we go through this walk of life. These are precious promises. Uh, uh, what does Jeremiah 29, 11 say? This is Rachel's favorite verse. She has it inscribed on her Bible. I think hers or the one she gave her husband who passed, 2911. I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil. I plan to give you a future and a hope. That's a promise to his people. My favorite verse in the Old Testament is 2 Chronicles 16.9, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth, looking to what? Strongly support those whose hearts are totally devoted to him. That's a promise that he wants to strongly support me if my heart is devoted to him. Okay? Just a teaser of the promises Look at the promises, read the promises, believe the promises, and that will create an epikinosis in your mind, and that personal intimate knowledge of God and Christ will encourage you and enable you to live a godly life. Next week, we're going to look at the virtues. We're going to look at diligence and knowledge and self-control. We're going to look at the process a sanctification. We'll look at all these things mean, and uh, we'll look at them in great detail. Comments or questions? Uh, thank you for bearing with me, uh, but uh, read the promises. See if you can uh, see if you can find 500. They're in there. They're in every book. They're in every book. Look at the promises. Trust the promises. And let the promises change you. And next week, we'll all have 500 promises that you'll have memorized in the right. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> no, just this one. I can't make you do anything, but I just encourage you to stand on the promises, as the great hymn says. Stand on the promise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the promises. They are precious. And they are given to you as a gift to us, your children. We thank you that these promises encourage us and they strengthen us we thank you that these promises uh, build us up in your faith and enable us to stand in difficult days and they shape us and make us like your son and prepare us for the day when we're going to be glorified lord help us to take seriously your promises scripture tells us to be diligent and we'll learn what that means next week but help us to be diligent and not to be apathetic and lukewarm and indifferent Lord, we are hard-hearted folk. Help us to rely on your promises, to know them, and to trust them. We pray that in your name. Amen.